This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. Our uh, compatriot, Ben, is away on, on adventures, what he would call adventures, and we would concur are, in fact, adventures. Uh, and that makes this a slightly different version of stuff they don't want you to know. It feels weird. Yeah, <laughs> always does. Always does when Ben is gone. But hey, guess what? As always, we're joined by our super producer, Paul Mission Control Decant. You are still you, and you're apparently right here. So that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Can I still be me? Uh... Don't answer that. Let's put a pin in that one. Okay. Uh, this is fun that we've done this before when Ben's been away on adventures where we, this is not a typical day of the week where you would normally hear our listener mail episode, but you know what? We don't believe in calendars here at Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. We throw those things out because it's all it's all a sham anyway, if you've listened to our recent episode on calendars. Uh, and we're going to do a listener mail episode today. But it's different because you may notice that in our typical weekly listener mail episodes, we sort of do a smattering of, uh, of missives from various sources, you know, from the Internet. Uh, but today we're doing only voice-driven missives, a.k.a. Vo- voicemails. Yes, it's <laughs> oops. Over-explaining this very simple concept that we're doing. That's correct. It's oops all voicemails today on stuff they don't want you to know. And it's mostly a function of us just having so many of these great messages. And we still have 75 right now as we're recording that we haven't even listened to yet. Oh boy, that's okay. Today we're going to hear from Daniel, More Broccoli, Chef, and Nick. Okay, here we go. Hey guys, my name's Daniel. I love your show. I'm calling up about that weird bit of news and the warehouse fire. I am in that very tiny bit of the Venn diagram of people who work actually designing and building fire suppression systems for warehouses and a person who listens to your show. So here's what I can tell you about warehouse fires and fire suppression systems. I talked to the lead project manager and architect for our company, and he said it is virtually impossible to have a warehouse without a fire suppression system. The only way he could think of is somebody building their own rogue warehouse out in the middle of Montana. So New York City, it's going to have a fire suppression system. There are two kinds of fire suppression systems. There is ESFR, early suppression, fast response systems, which are meant to put out the entire fire. Then there's non-ESFR. Those are meant to contain the fire until the firemen show up. 
Now, it's not to say that an ESFR system will always put out the fire. And it's not to say that a non-ESFR fire system won't put out a fire. It just depends. Um, the second thing, I talked to the president of the company and explained the situation to him and explained, you know, lithium batteries, <clears throat> motorcycles, and stuff like that, and a lot of paper. And his response was, that shit's going to burn. So, um, yeah, it could easily beat an ESFR system. And, of course, being in Texas, his one thing was once I started listing things, he looked at me and said, oh, and ammo? So, yeah, there was probably some ammunition in that warehouse. So that's my two bits on the warehouse fire. Um, good show. Look forward to listening to more episodes. Take care, Daniel. Oh, my gosh. Okay. We didn't really talk much about that. Uh, and when we when we discussed, this was obviously a warehouse, not just any old warehouse, a massive warehouse compound housing uh, evidence, you mm -hmm. know, for presumably an entire borough of New York or, or maybe even greater than that, maybe for the whole city. I'm not quite sure how that works. Yes. is a it, This is a story we did on Strange News about a very large warehouse in New York that burned. Uh, there was a huge fire there. It had a lot of evidence inside of it. It was run or owned, I guess, by a company called Erie Basin Marine Associates. That's the, the whole warehouse itself. And then the police department used some portion of that to store evidence. Meaning they're like leasing it from the owners? Um, I suppose so. Yeah, they're leasing it. That The landlord okay. was Erie Basin mm -hmm. Marine Associates. Got it. Um and, you know, just hearing this information from David, learning about ESFR and non-ESFR, I'm thinking about specifically ESFR systems like the large overhead sprinklers that you may see if you maybe live in an apartment complex. Many of those have uh, kind of the older sprinkler systems that will physically just shoot water on everything. There are other versions of that that have this really cool foam Mm -hmm. That will that expands, mm -hmm. which uh, some of that foam, by the way, we've talked about it before on this show, has some of those PFAS chemicals in it. Uh, and that's one of the reasons it's it functions so well as a fire retardant or a, it stops the fire, uh, which is a creepy thing to think about. Just getting forever chemicals all in your foam and then getting the foam on everything, including on the people, uh, you know, that are in the warehouse when the fire starts. Um but those those would make total sense, and it feels like either of those systems would have stopped that fire, really, no matter what was burning in there, or at least, you know, slowed it down enough to where, the uh, as David said, the fire department gets there, then puts the fire out. Um, but it doesn't seem like anything happened. And then, guys, I found some reporting from the I-Team at Channel 4 NBC in New York, uh, they put out something on December 20th after we had recorded that episode, and it's specifically about fire safety violations, sprinkler system violations that Erie Basin Marine Associates had over the course of 2020 and 21. Uh, and it may be the reason why the fire got out of control and why everything burned instead of it stopping. <laughs> Listen to this, Noel. They had at least 17 fire safety infractions in 2020 and 2021. So that's failure to test, inspect, or certify sprinkler systems. Yeah. So a little bit more on the negligent tip than perhaps the conspiratorial, you know, it was an inside job tip. But I, I also, when looking this up, because I'm fascinated too, because in my head I was also thinking about like, what about firewalls, you know, like like mm -hmm. things that separate different areas of a building uh, and, and make it where, you know, like compartments on the Titanic, which obviously those didn't work really well either. But the idea is to keep the fire from spreading. But then you picture a warehouse, it's all pretty open, usually mm -hmm. with like pallet racks and things like that stacking, you know, upward. But then you picture, again, I'm, I'm thinking about like assault on precinct, precinct 13, Breaking Bad and, you know, heists and things I've seen around police departments. Uh, usually those type of evidence storage facilities are more cordoned off and have, you know, separated, you know, parts between them. So you'd think there would be some manner of slow burning material that would keep the fire from spreading so quickly. Mm -hmm. 
That would make sense. And I imagine that, yeah, if you had something like that in place, those firewalls you're talking about, you could at least prevent it from getting to the next warehouse, right? Right. Um, should be great. I, I, I did find an article because now I'm like, yeah, going down this rabbit hole for the from the National Fire Protection Association. Mm-hmm. The NFPA is a thing. Uh, headline from November of uh, of 2021: Unique fire protection challenges found in warehouse distribution centers. Uh, according to the NFPA, uh, th- warehouse fires happen kind of a lot. Kind of an alarming amount with a th- with one thousand four hundred and ten warehouse fires, two deaths, twenty injuries, and an estimated one hundred and fifty nine point four million in direct property damage every year. Um, and ain't nobody wants that, you know. I mean, especially again, you wouldn't think necessarily unless it was an insurance scam that people would be negligent about warehouses holding, you know, stuff that you sell to like make money. But still just the same. Many of those do go up in flames as it turns out more than one might think. So the, the, the scope of the destruction though, does make me scratch my head a little bit, right? Wasn't it like a complete loss basically? Or, you, know? I, they, you know what? I can't we find, even know yet. I can't find an update to the story where the NYPD is saying, here's what was lost. Here's what wasn't lost and all of that. They'll have to, that's somebody's job is to catalog all of that stuff yeah. and make notes and make a, a tick in a ledger for destroyed in fire, you know? But what I can find is uh, statements from the FDNY uh, fire marshals because it's still under investigation. Um, just saying, yes, we're continuing to uh, assess the damage caused by the fire and an update will be quote available in the future. Um, there were a couple other things I just wanted to bring up here. An FDNY spokesperson said, quote, the warehouse is sprinklered throughout. So like this one that caught on fire does have sprinklers and the sprinklers activated, but the fire spread too quickly. And one of the points they're making about this, and I think it speaks to what David's talking about. When you're thinking about the layout of a warehouse, it, like you said, it's just a big open space often maybe with a few rooms in between, but largely open space. The sprinkler layout needs to be modified to how you've got things stacked in there. What that's types right. of materials are stored in what areas. So that's a tough, that's a tough ask to like change the sprinkler system around unless you've got, you know, a version where you can easily change out heads and where the water's actually going to come down. And the reason I asked about the whole leasing situation is typically you think of like government entities, you know, like the police department or whatever, owning their own building in a space that was built like for that express purpose. But we know budget cuts and things like that might potentially cause them to have to use a a pre-existing place, maybe isn't exactly intended for this and do it quickly and get all that stuff in there and make it, you know, make do the best they possibly can. But no, sprinkle aren't exactly something you can just kind of move around. They're they're pipes and they terminate, you know, water sources. You, you've got to rerun them or like customize them. Well, yeah. So theoretically, what you would do as the tenant is you would stack up the things that are more flammable and more at risk in the areas where there's more coverage from the sprinklers, right? It would be on you then. Uh, but it appears that those two things just were out of sync. And wasn't there a thing, though, where there were like a lot of combustible like batteries too, like like scooters or electric bikes or something like that? And that was a big part of the problem. Yeah, there were there were numerous heavy metals that ended up catching mm. on fire uh, due to some of the stuff that was kept there at the pound. Remember, was we it the NYPD's fleet of hoverboards that was uh, at issue here? I don't think so. I don't think those got hit. I think it was uh, mostly lime scooters. No, I'm just joking. I don't know what it was. Um, yeah, but we, we don't have a, a, an inventory list here. But hey, just with this one, I just wanted to point out, there's no, I, I don't have an update yet. I don't have more information on what cases are actually going to be affected. It's a lot of reporting about the potential of many cases being affected. Uh, and that did happen in mid-December. Of I was there. 2022. I, I, I wasn't. I, let me rephrase whoa, whoa, that. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I wasn't on site, but uh, I was in New York and somebody, some local, uh, mentioned that this was like, you know, being reported on the local news and that they knew where this place was. And that it was like, you know, it was kind of alarming. Maybe, no, I know what it was. 
It was when you you weren't with us, unfortunately, because uh, Ben and I went to New York to do the Elvis Duran show, and mm. you had some family stuff, and you couldn't make it. And it was one of the guys uh, at Elvis Duran because he was interested in the show, and he thought it'd be something that we would have a take on. And he was like, "Oh my god, did you just hear about this?" You know, and, and so he, his immediate thought was, "You know, that's where the mind does tend to go when you hear warehouse full of evidence destroyed." Because again, my mind always goes back to that Breaking Bad uh, uh, sequence where they are trying to get one piece of evidence out of of the you know this lockup, which is basically impenetrable. In order to get there, just they have to destroy everything. That's the only way because you can't really get in. So the only way to make sure that your thing isn't used against somebody or you or some, you know, one of your uh, associates is to destroy the whole thing. Jeez. Yeah, I remember when we talked about that. Go full destruction if you wanted to take out one piece of evidence. That's nuts. Well, uh, hey, David, thank you so much for calling, giving us that info and for speaking to all the people you spoke uh, uh, to about this. That was very cool. You didn't have to do that. And we appreciate it. I just thought of something kind of clever. Uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back of this one. If you want to find a needle in a haystack, burn down the haystack. Oh, snap. Just saying. How hot <laughs> is the fire going to get? Is it going to melt? Is it going to melt that metal? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. Brilliant. All right. And with that, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Oops! All voicemails. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. And we're back with more Oops, I left a voicemail. Yes, we are. Okay. <laughs> we, we definitely are, Brittany. And here we go. This is, is this a Brittany story? It's not at all. I just, that was the close, that was the, that was, yeah, sorry. I want to learn about this tomato experiment. It's the, oh, the famous, <laughs> the famous tomato, the, the, the Maslow tomato experiment <laughs> of, 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 of 1937. Yes. No, more like of 1990. One, uh, yeah. Let, let's let's get right to it. This is fun. Hey guys, it's more broccoli calling you. I have an identical tomato experience as Noel does from you know being forced to eat a slice from someone and my aunt in the family, and it was you know the, the best tomato, and they just were convinced that if I tried the absolute best of the thing that I hate that I would love it or whatever, or at least appreciate it, which of course I did not. And I also appreciated to throw up and they never made me do it again. But for the most part, I'm totally great with tomatoes now. You know, this, this happened 
with blueberries when I was a kid, you know, once I threw up the thing that I, they knew I hated and didn't want to eat that they'd been making me eat, then I never had to eat it again. Once the regurgitation happened, which, you know, I bet you we're able to like make it happen because that's like psychological damage as a kid. So it makes sense that like we would, our bodies would align with our brain and revolt like, our body's like, yeah, I'm on board with the brain. Screw you, family. I'm going to barf this up. See if you want me to barf it all up again when it's good food. You're not going to want to waste it on me. See, there is evolutionary logic for it. There is, like, studies that indicate that, like, children can taste things like bitterness, perhaps, more than adults can. So, like, to some extent, like, when kids don't want to eat vegetables, that maybe they're detecting things that adults can't, uh, maybe more theories and hypothesis than facts. Oh man. Okay. Whew. <laughs> uh, where to, where to start? Uh, yeah. Well, I'll psychological. Tell you I'll tell you where to start. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. that is more broccoli, AKA Stephanie. And, uh, I hear her voice more than most other people on our voicemail machine. So shout out to you. Uh, more broccoli. Oh, I think she's called in before if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We hear from more broccoli all the time. She calls in probably more than anybody else out there. There are a few of you. You know who you are. Call in a lot. But this is the... Except you, Anon. You don't know who you are yet. (laughs) But but she's called in. This is like the third or fourth time we've used uh, more broccoli on the air. All right. Uh, thank you, more broccoli, for sharing your trauma with me. Um, because you're right, it was it was psychologically traumatic. Because any, you know, I mean, as you know, um, anytime you know, being forced to eat something that your body and your brain are literally like recoiling from um, is is not good. <laughs> Is it can be a real shock to the system, and uh, it is such a parental I know best thing to say. No, this is the best one of this, and therefore you will instantly change your perspective if you just listen to me and do the thing. Uh, and 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 I, I'm the first to say that as a parent, you know, with a picky eater for a kid, I think that way too sometimes. And it's just not how it works because, you know, different people have different sensitivities to texture, for example. Sometimes it's not even about taste. It's about texture, you know, or it's about like, you know, if something's too squishy or if it's too whatever, any any of these kind of like adjectives like mealy, uh, that one grosses me out too. I think it's overwhelmingly about texture. And I I still have some of that, some aversions to certain things and foods because of what the texture is like. But it is very interesting how that um, texture preference changes as you travel throughout the world and go to That's different right. parts of the world and then completely different textures are normalized. And then other ones that I really like are weird as heck. But also it's weird. Like my kid doesn't like creamy sauces, for example, on pasta, but likes macaroni and cheese. You know, what could be a creamier sauce than like, you know, craft macaroni and cheese or even the, she likes, she prefers the kind that comes out of the bag, the, um, you know, the Velveeta, the shells, mm. the kind that's like pre-mixed in this like bizarre creamy paste. That's um, a gloop. It, it's a gloop. And, but my point is though, it's it, a lot of it is framed by psychology. A lot of it is framed by like how you interpret the thing. You know, it's like some people only like food if it's in a certain shape, like if it's in a quesadilla versus if it's in just a bowl on its own, you know, you need some kind of wrapper. And I think that's true of a lot of things, like not to be too much of a stretch, but like even ideas, you know, it's a lot easier to, to accept something if it's kind of wrapped in like a nice pastry shape shell, you know, like actually we talked about this the other day in our, um, episode about, um, you know, helping people, you know, kind of talk to folks with very, very differing opinions is that sometimes you got to sneak those veggies in the conversation in order to, uh, to get, you know, the nutrients needed to the, to the person who is just already pre-decided they don't want them. But, um, this call from, from more broccoli also made me think about just how, taste buds and and our sense of taste is also a product of evolution too because you know as as we've evolved it's like taste is much more of a luxury than it is like a way of detecting bad will this will kill you Mm -hmm. you know so now it's like ew that's icky because it tastes like you know broccoli or whatever instead of like oh i i taste in an herb or or some sort of ingredient or substance that if i eat too much of it it will kill me 
you know? Um, so it's like taste, you know, like any sense we've, it's kind of been repurposed in a lot of ways. And now, you know, as you get older, you, you lose some taste buds and your taste buds maybe get a little duller. Um, and, but they also, we kind of feed them in different ways. Like when you get older, you might lose your sweet tooth, but you might really, really like like kimchi or something that, you know, uh, maybe a small child might just be too overwhelming, you know, in terms of the kind of funky spiciness of it all. And then we get older, you crave that. But I like your cultural perspective on this too, Matt. I'd love to explore that a little deeper because in Korea, I'm sure they feed small kids kimchi and it's all just about acclimating, you know, like from a, from an early age and what you get used to in America, we feed kids pablum and kind of flavorless crap. Yeah. I mean, many times it becomes, Oh, I'm sorry, kid. You don't like the way that tastes. We don't have any other foods. So yeah, exactly. Don't eat, I guess, you until do? you're ready yeah. to eat the t- the raw tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you, you really no, have a raw tomato thing? I, 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 I have gotten past it to a degree. I still would never in a million years on purpose eat a tomato on its own, but I like it on a burger. I like it on a club sandwich, you know, seasoned. But yeah, the, the thing, if I ate a raw tomato right now, uh, less so with cherry tomatoes. I find they're they're a little sweeter or something, but it's got a thing to it that I just don't love on its own. And I can imagine as a kid with more perhaps sensitive buds that that thing that I still don't kind of love would have just been all encompassing and just kind of knocked me on my ass and made me literally vomit all over the lovely tray of tomatoes that my mother prepared. You know, the best of the season. Yeah, <laughs> whatever, seems, mom. Seems like too many tomatoes. Yeah, it was a platter. I didn't like the I didn't like the look of them either. I don't know, man. T- tomatoes have always kind of weird, but I love and always have. And, and same with like kids, you know, spaghetti. Every kid loves spaghetti because it's got a lot of sugar in it. It's got like things in it that offset the natural taste of tomato. Ketchup doesn't taste like a tomato's ever been anywhere near it. You know, <laughs> you're right. And yet, B- B- Ben and I did an episode on ketchup on Ridiculous History and real, you know, Heinz ketchup. I I I said I bet there's not even any tomato in that stuff. There is. It, it, it's all co- cooked down with a lot of sugar and mm-hmm. like special spices and stuff to the point where it's kind of been transformed into something that really has no relationship to a tomato, even if that's like what's in it. I want to go back to this evolutionary thing, the concept of our taste buds for some, for some reason or somehow being uh, desensitized to a lot of things and losing an ability to detect that, which might harm us. I'm just thinking about the, the stuff that ends up in many of our processed foods that we consume on a regular basis in many of even the fresh foods, if you you know think about um, instances of high levels of mercury within specific types of fish, right? Sure. Or uh, you know when there were those massive oil spills and people were still eating Gulf shrimp that were coming out of the you know from the bottom of the ocean, where all that stuff that um, the dispersant. And the oil was all just on the bottom where all of the crustaceans were hanging out. And I don't know. It just, it weirds me out because I can't tell you. Not to mention microplastics yeah. and things oh, like that. Oh, yeah. And the forever chemicals. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't taste that stuff. I don't know when it's going into my body, but I guarantee you my, the bacteria that lives within me in my stomach and my intestines knows when it gets in there. Well, and, and that's the thing that I think is interesting, too, is like, is our equipment being dulled over time where we can't maybe taste more nuanced things in terms of the actual, you know, how the sensors of our tongues, you know, of our taste buds are are functioning. But it's also a relationship to our brain, right? Mm-hmm. Because we can, we, our brain allows us to pick out more nuanced things, even if our equipment is a little dulled. Because especially, you know, things like cigarette smoking, for example, uh, chemical pollutants uh, and, and various, you know, environmental factors absolutely do, you know, have an effect on taste and smell over time uh, for the long haul. Not to mention I've heard of people having long COVID, you know, or, and, and having some of those uh, changes to their smell and taste stick around mm. and, and th- like maybe it's, you know, it doesn't like, it's not like you can't smell or taste, but I have heard cases of people saying it never fully came back. 
and now they've got like a deficient <laughs> sniffer and uh, and taster. But um, one thing that more broccoli mentioned as well is the idea of maybe kids are tasting things like impurities. Maybe kids are actually, because they've got this like fresh new, you know, right off the lot tongue, you know, they can taste like things like chemical pollutants perhaps. Um, Or like a lot of produce and things, they don't taste the way they did originally because they've, Changed like you know they we'll talk about the way a banana tastes now versus what a banana used to taste like, and that's a lot of that's was a result of you know different um, processes you know and things like that. I don't know. Well, I'm just disease taking here. out all kinds of different species of banana, right? And literally, yeah, the species again, of banana not, has changed over time. I'm not saying that there's this like evolutionary mind or something that like gets dumbed down over time necessarily, but I'm interested in like I, I would love to see studies as to like how much better kids can taste than adults. And if that means that they are able to have a, if they knew what to connect it to, if we could like train a kid to be like a, a super taster, like a drug sniffing dog, you know what I mean? Okay. That's not very ethical. I know, but um, just, we're, we're just talking, you know, conceptually here, but I don't know, man, this is an interesting concept because I think we, Take for granted that the, the taste isn't something that's just for fun, you know. Like taste is, it's it's one of our senses, and and it really has a lot of connection to memory and and deep um, pathways to the brain, you know. Whoa, yeah, it, yeah. It does make me think about the absolute importance of taste when you know early humans are out foraging or hunting and tracking animals or figuring out which berry is actually edible and the distinct flavor like i mean obviously visually identifying you know a berry being able to taste a small sample of that berry and know whether that is a poisonous one or not um just how important that is and how because we survived, because we're still products of that same, those same lines, we've got some of that in us somewhere. Yeah, it's almost like smelling sort of the pre-test and then tasting sort of the next level test, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, uh, you know, hopefully one bad berry wouldn't be enough to kill you. Um, but you would, you would know hope theoretically from the taste, but also isn't the deal that a lot of those kind of sweet berries there, uh, as, as a species, you know, as a plant, their defense mechanism is to be sweet and to therefore kind of attract the thing that thinks they're the other thing and then eats them and dies. So they can't eat any more. You know, I don't know. Nature crazy. (laughs) It's crazy. I'm imagining more broccoli living in some time, several, several thousand years ago, and she's out looking for, you know, foods that she and her group can eat. And she comes across just the best looking, ripe, juicy tomato and tastes a, takes a bite of it and just goes, oh, no way, never. But, you know, there's all those tomatoes, man. They could have eaten all those tomatoes. And I'm 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 off my tree uh, as we're talking about uh, uh, agriculture here because I was exactly the opposite. It would be more the color that would uh, that would attract you know mm. some uh, an animal to a poisonous berry. But typically, uh, berries that are sweet are not toxic, and berries that are really bitter or like have you know a taste that is unpleasant in some way are toxic. Oh, so that you know so there that, that's the thing that would be the next test, right? You might visualize it, say, oh that looks looks nice that's it's, it's bright and inviting yeah. and then you give it a smell and you can't quite tell then you give it a little taste Ooh, that's bitter bitter equals bad wait but at why least do I in like, terms of survival how how did cranberries end up writing that line just so perfectly well, is it, isn't that the thing though Matt? that's kind of what we're getting at in this whole conversation is now taste i think is a lot less evolutionarily important in that way so we can eat bitter things we've evolved maybe to like nastier quote-unquote things or things that typically would be like spit out you know by a child or or you know an antelope um because we don't have to worry about that anymore because we have other ways to test our food and we're not really foraging so much you know as a species anymore so anyway this is a neat one we kind of go go longer with this one but i think we've about uh gotten there what do you think matt time for a little ad break perhaps 
Oh, and last thing though, Matt, um, I think we've talked about this. Definitely some of our, our latter day how stuff works podcasts have certainly talked about this, but do you know about the concept of being a super taster? I do. I know, I know it in context of, for some reason of ice cream, somebody who maybe worked for haagen or Ben & Jerry's, I remember watching a story on somebody who could taste the ice cream and know all of the different components that were in it. Uh, it was really interesting. And that's probably the same, you know, I think you can train, again, you can train your brain to kind of pick that stuff out. But if you literally have more sensitive, I keep using the word equipment, then you're going to be more predisposed to be able to do that. Um, but like sommeliers, for example, who train themselves to be able to taste different aspects of wine, you know, and, you know, things that sometimes come off as pretentious and absolutely absurd, like sometimes. oaky and notes. <laughs> well, I, I think there are, there are, there is truth to that to a degree um, if you know what you're what you're mm -hmm. tasting for but to the average you know you or me uh, I'll take a bottle of 10 buck chuck most of the time but um, you know and this applies to scent as well with folks that can like really separate out all the different parts of a perfume you know and all the different components so but you, but if you're interested, if you're a super taster or not, they actually do have, I think, more taste buds, or they have like uh, just like the the the, ta the tongue of a super taster has taste buds clustered much closer together, and they can taste certain tastes uh, much more uh, specifically. And there is a way if you go to scientificamerican.com, you can find out if you are a super taster. You can actually order this like little thing that that if you you just like a little, it looks like a little piece of paper kind of, I think. And if you put it in your mouth and it tastes bitter, then you, you are a super taster. There's, there's different ways of going about it, but, uh, pretty interesting stuff. Definitely. Oh, well, uh, Noel, do you want to hear about it? No, we should go to a break. Okay, let's do it. I'm Katia Adler, host of the global story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We're back, and we are jumping to a message from Chef. Hey guys, what's up? This is Chef. Um, I recently listened to your uh, classic episode about pyramids. Really, really, really cool stuff. I really enjoyed it. Um, something that you guys didn't touch on, and uh, maybe you know about it, maybe you don't, but the Azores Islands, part of Portugal, it's out in the Atlantic. There are underwater pyramids and above land pyramids that look like they were pretty hard to make. Um, 
There was a guy who was researching them, and he got a bunch of money from the government, and then the government shut him down. Um, there's an underwater pyramid thing, and there either even some people are saying that it might be uh, like to do with the legend of Atlantis. I don't know. Um, it's something to check out the Azores Islands, and there's just some weird stuff going on there. I uh, hope you guys are having a great day. Love your show. Brings me so much joy, and yeah, it's just nice to hear some cool guys talking about cool stuff. Peace out. Man, I love Chef's enthusiasm for life. It's, it, it's infectious, like a some sort of pleasant plague. <laughs> no, it's really good. It's really good. It puts a smile on my face. Thank you for calling in and saying those things. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely in, in infectious, like some sort of uh, delightful plague. <laughs> um you no, know, I mean that with with all of love, as as do I mean with love when uh, I say I have always heard uh, they, these particular islands pronounced as the Azores, and mm. I think I probably only know that from like watching the uh, shows about rich people talking about going on vacation. I think this is a popular destination for like rich people paradises. Oh, see now I've not caught those uh, those shows or mentions. I didn't know this, so I just went right along with Azores. Uh, I know I've seen it written as the Azorian regional government. Uh, so the way it's written, it makes it feel more like it's Azores to me. Yeah, and it could be that I'm just pronouncing it the way all these jerky rich folks do and that they're wrong. Um, so who's to say? But man, maybe you had me underwater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's let's find one of them. But um, you had me in underwater pyramids. Yes, uh, underwater structures of any kind um, kind of freak me out and fascinate me. Yeah, because it speaks to some kind of pre-flood civil civilization, possibly, potentially. Right. And that's kind of cool. That really is the territory of the ancient ones, the ones who time forgot um, people who maybe had technology or at least the the myths around potential lost technologies and civilizations that it's just fascinated everybody on this show for so long. And it's probably fascinated you, too. Uh, we did some digging into the potential underwater pyramid in this area. And we want to tell you what we found. So back in 2014, there were several or and, and 2013, actually, there were several articles posted about a man who had taken his boat out to this area in the Azores and was looking for potential fishing uh, areas, I guess, like looking at the bottom of the sea the depth, right, to see where there are potential fishing spots and to get other information just about the the geology of that area. And this person saw some weird stuff through the technology where you're actually scanning the bottom of the ocean there and you're looking at elevation. Uh, he found a thing that if you look at the picture and the readout, it looks like a pyramid that is submerged underwater, like 60 meters down. And it's it's got that kind of diamond shape with the four corners, and it appears that two of the corners are oriented north and south, the way the pyramids, the Great Pyramids of Giza are oriented and, and other pyramids that are found across the planet. So if you're just looking at that image of what he saw on the technology he was using to scan the seafloor, you'd think maybe this guy found a pyramid down at the bottom of the sea. So he went on the local news there, and told his story. You can find a video of that at surfertoday.com. They've got an embedded video where you can actually watch this person. Uh, his last name is Silva. And he's speaking to some local reporter and going over the footage. You can look at it. Um, it does appear that there was a lot of interest after this story went out. There's public interest. There's also interest from other groups who, you know, study this stuff all the time. And again, if you just look at the footage, it seems compelling. Noel, did you get a chance to look at that at all, just to see the picture? No, I'm I'm, I'm dialing up uh, Surfer today right now. Okay, is that this is a still, the one at the top of uh, the divers? No, that's not an actual photo. If you look at that photo, oh. that is a photoshopped some sort thing. of comp. Okay, because that looks really cool. I am I'm scrolling through it. And I see the structures as they appear on like what looks like uh, kind of one of those fishing boat uh, radar kind of deals, right? 
it shows elevation and you can see that it's, you know, kind of mapping the terrain and showing that there's a structure with a big, you know, flat base that kind of goes up to a point like, like a pyramid because it's 360 degrees. It definitely looks like it right from that imagery. If that's all you had, you'd think that could be something. But here's what happened after this news story went out and, you know, others got interested. We can jump to the Portuguese American Journal, which posted something on October 9th, 2013, which pretty unequivocally states, no, this is not an underground pyramid. This is a volcano structure that this person saw that is known by everybody here. It's between the two large islands, Terceira and Sao Miguel. And you kind of look at uh, the two pictures of these on a map and this volcano structure that they're saying is at a depth of about 40 meters, like the top of it, the part that this person saw. Uh, it's known. It's been there for a long time. Nothing to see here, basically. So I just want to ask you, what do you think? Do you think there's nothing to see here, Noel? I don't know, man. Uh, that that Photoshop sure got me going. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I think that's what happened. Pyramidal structure found by amateur sailor, not man-made, uh, in Portuguese American Journal. Um, this is from 2013. I mean, there's no follow-up to this. Uh, what were you able to find when you when you dug a little deeper, Matt? This seems like it's not that deep. Can't you just go check it out? Like, wh- where's where's the mystery remaining? <laughs> not you, not you personally, Matt. I'm not expecting you to put on your wetsuit and, and go check it out. But wouldn't there be underwater fo- fo- photography of it now? It seems like the locals are saying nothing to see here, folks. We already know what this is. Just wondering where where is the remaining part that's in question. Um, there's really nothing that's in question to to my understanding. I think this is the kind of thing because of that sensational photo that's at the top of this older article, like we said, it's from 2014, 2013. Um, it's a, it's a stock photo, a couple of stock photos that have been smashed together. It looks like scuba diving photo and a pyramid photo. And they just kind of overlaid them. You see that you see the headline underwater pyramid, your mind, you know, your mind goes to all kinds of places and it's something you want to talk about, something you want to share. And it's something you don't want to get disappointed about. You don't want to be disappointed. Oh, it's just a, it's a known volcanic mound. That's boring. I want magic. Well, yeah, I, you know, I do. No, I mean, it's true. I do too. And I think this, this, what we're seeing here in real time is this story kind of morphing into being the story maybe about a potential underwater pyramid and more a story about like how you do need to kind of check your sources not not you caller specifically but all of us because i you heard me in real time uh mm-hmm. <laughs> calling for the same thing because i'm like wait is that, that that's awesome yes i'm on board you see that picture and now that i'm looking at it even closer it's not even a very good photoshop <laughs> so it's just a mat we can all be taken in by this stuff y'all just kind of heard me being taken in by it i'm looking now and there's a really bad textural overlay of like bubbles yeah i mean it's pretty embarrassing yeah i'm but you know what let me be uh the sacrificial lamb here because uh you know how many days a week do we do this stuff we talk about this stuff and my brain immediately was like yeah underwater pyramids let's (laughs) go yeah you know well i think that's the natural reaction right to anybody who grew up with a little bit of mystery being allowed you know if you're allowed to take your mind to those places then underwater pyramids just makes you go yes Yes. Um, I, but you, you have to think about it uh, kind of coldly. The Azores, it's a series of nine volcanic islands. Okay. The, this whole area that we're talking about, this is another small volcanic, not quite island yet, but maybe aspires to be an island one day, or maybe was a volcano a long time ago. I, I don't know the geology behind that particular mound, but you know, it, it has the same, it has the same potential as all the other islands to just pop up above water. That's just kind of the boring reality, I guess. It, it is, but, but I think this is important, especially on the heels of our, you know, 
how to be a skeptic episodes, you know? I mean, this stuff really is important. I, I almost just fell for it again. I, I saw a picture <laughs> on Instagram on my phone. Breaking news, a Tibetan monk discovered in a mountain cave in Nepal is now considered the oldest person in the world at 206 years old. I'm like, that's awesome. And then it goes on. He was found in a state of deep meditation called Takatet. Archaeologists first thought he was a mummy, but then noticed that he has vital signs and is alive. Among his things, they found an old scroll that says, I've seen Jerry more times than you. And it's on a page called Ohio Dead Family. <laughs> what? Like Grateful Dead, Jerry. I've oh. seen Jerry more times. I mean, but I, I see this breaking news and there's a picture of all these medical people handling this shriveled looking monk. And I'm like, yes, monk found in cave. <laughs> Oldest living human. Look, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but also like it's, it's a thing, you know, it's just... Be vigilant. Yeah, there's so know? much there's so much junk out there. So, so much. But chef, that doesn't mean the the other things you were talking about in that message are necessarily debunked. I don't know anything else all. about the other pyramids in the Azores. I don't know this area at all. This is literally my first time thinking about that place. So we're gonna put our heads into it and see if we can find anything uh, that is worth everybody's time. It is a weird thing. That guy made a discovery that he felt was significant, talked to a reporter, that reporter sent it out to everybody, and then it became a huge news story for a moment, right? Then it died down and waited for somebody else to discover it through search and then make social media posts about it. <laughs> but that's how a lot of things happen. They get this second life, either as like a meme or as whatever it might be, um, because somebody reposts it in just the right way. And whereas it used to be like, you know, people that told tall tales, you know, if it was heard by enough people, it might eventually get elevated to the level of myth and then elevated to the level of like folklore. And, and the difference between all those things usually involve more or fewer primary sources. You know what I mean? Folklore a lot of time is based in ritual and in tradition, but then tall tales are kind of like made up stories, you know, that then get repeated in the in this different context and become, you know, there's a grain of truth to it. And now that's just the internet. The internet is our like oral and visual tradition now. And it's so easy to bark up the wrong tree and just start spreading stuff around. Um, the good news is it can also be shut down much more quickly, uh, but sometimes it gets out of hand. And then, you know, as Ben often says, nobody reads the retraction, you know, no one, no one reads the exoneration. They just, they just know that someone was accused of something or that some crazy thing happened and then they just run with it because everyone's brain, again, that confirmation bias, everyone's brain wants to be right. And wants to be the rightest one in the room with the best scoops, you know, and the best info. Well, it's way more fun to talk about underwater pyramids than it is volcanic mounds that are just chilling down below the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just life, man. Uh, we got so many voicemails that we're not going to get to today. Noel? Um, yeah, we always kind of are like, ah, you need like 10 of them, you know, but then the guys are so fascinating that we just can babble on about, uh, you know, and if it was all three of us, we would have gone even longer. Probably. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, oh yeah. Uh, this, that's the point. We just, we love hearing from you and your stories and it really kind of just makes us feel like we're part of a community, you know, and we hope it makes you feel the same way. A hundred percent. No, I wonder if you wouldn't mind. If we could close with a, it's not a discussion. I just want you to hear what Nick said, and then we can then we can end the episode. Hey guys, long time listener, first time caller. My name is Nick. Um, I was listening to one of your shows back from September about uh, I think a strange news animal attack. You guys are talking about a turkey attack on an old man. Well, we're gonna assume he's old because how else do you break hips with turkeys? But you said something about that turkeys can't fly. That's not true. Turkeys can fly just fine. Wild turkeys will fly 50, 60 feet into a tree to roost at nighttime. And they're capable of going straight vertically up like any other bird. It's really impressive. And second, when a bunch of males get into a group, you know, they're called jakes when they're young and toms when they're a little bit older, they can get pretty aggressive. And on top of that, they have on the back of each heel a little bit above their feet, what are called spurs. I don't know if you've ever seen them on a rooster. They're made out of keratin, like fingernails. But they're basically a giant knife 
on the back of their feet. So what they do is they jump up, flap, which is intimidating, but they come down on their enemies, I guess, with their spurs, and they can they can cut you up pretty good. I know this as a turkey hunter. That's really it. But yeah, they're actually really impressive, and and they can be pretty intimidating because they don't give up. You can kick a turkey, but they'll come right back at you. Like they're not gonna give up. They don't just go away. You're gonna have to get away from them. And they're scary, you know. It's a bird. You had something that big come at you. It's pretty freaking scary. But anyway, thanks guys. Love the show. All right, thanks. Bye. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> I'm sorry, no, we don't have to do this. Nah, man, nah, man, nah. I don't like any of that one bit. I'm sorry. We got we got knife, foot knife rooster turkey guys now coming at me from the trees, dive bombing on me. Oh, my God. That's this the is designed for my nightmare. Yeah, man. <laughs> Also, the the groups. Of, I mean, I know we've talked about this, and I'm really only barely playing up my fear here because it's definitely abated over time. Like, I'm not gonna like run away from like a bird, but I was once chased by a rooster, uh, and I did not want to be caught. But uh, turkeys are so beefy, man. They're mm-hmm. so like, oh, if they, if they, <laughs> can you imagine just getting bombed by a turkey yeah. out of a tree with it w- flipping its knife heels at you? I mean. No, I would I would go catatonic. Okay. <laughs> you would have to I would like Yeah, no. Well, you, it would take a lot to pull me out of that fugue state, I can tell you. If well maybe if they didn't think you were a threat, they would cease their attacking. Their their knifing. I guess maybe I would just I would like to think. I can't say um I would like to think I would just go limp <laughs> and and just play dead. I would probably be dead. I would probably <laughs> die of shock. If that were to happen to me. Um, well, there you go. Nick said. I'm going to have some sweet dreams tonight. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. No. I sometimes wake up thinking there are turkeys under my covers. And I, uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> All right. Uh, um. I don't. I don't want to torture you, Noel. I, I just. It's yeah, you do, man. <laughs> you, yeah, your gleeful laughter belies your uh, your true. Your, no. what you just said. Man. You say yeah. you say the most wonderful things when when you're in that state, and it just brings me great joy. I appreciate wow. you. I do. I, I will cook the hell out of a turkey. That's right. That's how you yeah. get revenge. Mm-hmm. That's how I take back my agency. <laughs> 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 I got a real knife, okay? And it's big and sharp. And it ain't made of keratin. It's made of Japanese cold steel. Ooh, yeah. Cold Japanese steel. Sorry, that sounded weird, but. All right. Okay. This was fun, Matt. Yeah, it was. This was fun. Major thank you to Daniel, more broccoli, Chef, and Nick. There were several other of you that we wanted to get to, but we will get to you in a future listener mail episode. And and literally, because it means that we won't have to dig for another one on the next episode. So you Mm -hmm. all are literally queued up for Matt and myself for the next listener mail episode. Oh, yeah. So if you want to be like Daniel, more broccoli, Chef, and Nick, why not? Get in touch with us. You can find us on social media. We're all over the place. TikTok and Instagram, Conspiracy Stuff Show. Twitter and Facebook, Conspiracy Stuff. If you... Oh, by the way, YouTube. Hello. YouTube.com slash Conspiracy Stuff. If you don't like social media and watching hilarious videos from us, why not instead give us a call? That's right. We are one eight three three S T D W Y T K. You got three minutes, and uh, you'll find that it's uh, it's it's usually more than enough to to get your story out. You'd be surprised. Um, and if you do find that you need a little more time than that to to tell us something, or you want to include sources or links or whatever it is, you can get at us the old fashioned way with a good old email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.